Nobody builds a bad house on purpose. People who study design will tell you that every building that you walk into, every house, every office, every airport, was drawn out by somebody who learned design and who most likely has had experience in designing something else before. So they have the education and they have the experience and almost everybody starts with the same intention no matter what building it is they're designing. They wanna build a functional airport or a beautiful house or a productive office space. So those of us who go into buildings are left wondering why is it that there are so many truly terrible buildings in the world? Really, airports that look like this or houses that look like this. There's so many, so many dysfunctional office space, spaces, clunky airports and quirky houses in the world, despite the fact that the architects building them actually tried. They tried to build a beautiful building. The result was uninspiring. Why is that? One architect said the problem is that so many things try to worm their way into any design that don't belong there. Behind every bad design, one architect said, is a person who at some point started to forget, one, the function of the space, and two, the people it was supposed to serve. What separates a great building from a subpar building, the architect said, is the self-control required to say yes to everything that serves the function of the design and no to anything that doesn't belong. Nobody builds a bad house on purpose. They just forget the focus of the design and the people that the building was supposed to work for. Nobody builds a bad life on purpose either. They just forget the focus of the design and the people that their life is supposed to work for. I think that's where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's writing a letter to this new community of faith in Corinth, and they're trying to figure out really how to merge two distinct identities. On one hand, many of these people have been Jewish before. They're still going to synagogue on Saturday and gathering in the church on Sunday, and they're trying to figure out how these identities are similar and how these identities are distinct. And so he writes all sorts of things about marriage and lawsuits and worship practices, things that we sort of think of actually pertain to life in God as it relates to the church, right? But in the midst of all those things we typically think about in church, Paul offers this kind of strange instruction on groceries. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And I'm kind of befuddled about this until I realized that a lot of the butchers in Corinth were also priests for false gods. And in Jewish religious systems, eating meat sacrificed to idols made you complicit or participatory in or sanctioning idol worship. So every time the Christians at this time go into the market, they're asking, has this been sacrificed? And if so, should I take it home or should I not? So you can see the controversy that's arriving in the meat aisle of the supermarket here. And Paul's writing into this controversy and he just sort of tries to drop the mic and solve the argument. He says, eat what you want. Everything's permissible, which is incredibly good news to the people he's writing to because people in Corinth are deeply concerned with their rights. To them, what it means to be successful, what it means to make something of your life is to be able to have enough money, fame, honor, and power to do what you want, when you want, how you want. And so the Corinthians hear this letter and they think, Maybe there's a religious person who actually gets it. 
that we can just baptize what we want to do and still honor God. And then he pivots in the next verse and says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then he goes even further and says, if anybody says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it, both for the sake of the person who told you and for the sake of conscience. I read and reread this passage and was so confused because at first it seems like Paul is trying to affirm their freedom and rights in Christ. And in the next verse, he, he starts going back to this idea that we should just people please others. At least that's the way I've read it. So in other words, the Corinthians probably hear this and think, so if, if somebody else dangles something over my head that offends them, I should just drop it, even if it's an important practice to me. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about making other people happy. He's not talking about enabling other people's dysfunctional expectations of you. He's simply saying, God wants you to enjoy your freedom. Full stop. But there may come moments when you have to choose between clutching to your rights and being generous toward your neighbor. And if you have to choose between your rights and your neighbor, choose your neighbor. Paul's using a different blueprint for freedom here. Do you see it? Christian freedom isn't just asserting your ability to do what feels right. It's being in command enough of your desires to do what is right. If you're born into a culture like Corinth and like ours that values freedom to do what you want, you hear from an early age that part of your rights is to make of the world what you want it to get from your life what you want, things that serve you. And you hear that freedom is the ability to throw out, off every outside limitation in order to do what feels right to you. Whatever you do, we say, whatever you do, the Corinthians say, don't give up your rights. The problem, Paul says, is that you can be well within your rights and still be wrong. There are all sorts of things that your rights will allow you to do that love won't. Your rights will allow you to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but when it prevents your neighbor from knowing God, love won't let you do that. Your rights will allow you to spend all of your money on yourself. You have every right. But love for the poor won't let you do that. Your rights will allow you to lose your temper, temper with your children or your spouse or anybody over whom you feel authority. Love won't let you do that. Your rights will allow you to approach every relationship in your life as a competition for power, going into your workplace constantly wondering how you're stacking up on the totem pole of appreciation and recognition and skill, going into your friendships instead of celebrating other people's success as success for them and a win, you see it as another thing you didn't achieve, but love won't let you do that. Freedom isn't about insisting on your rights, Paul says. It's about knowing when to give up your preferences if that's what love requires. That's why Peter and Paul both write at long length, much to my dismay, about self-control. Growing up, I've tended to think of self-control as a way to suppress desires that I would always have as if God was telling me no to all the things that I'd wanna do throughout my life. I'm realizing now that that's too small of a definition. Self-control to Peter and Paul 
is simply living by design. It's being purposeful about what you allow into the floor plan of your relationships and your calendar and your heart. It's leading your desires toward good things instead of following your desires wherever they lead. It's building in structures and checks and balances in your life that uproot the things that have wormed their way into your heart that didn't belong there. It's aligning your choices so that you're free enough to say yes to what love requires and no to what love won't allow. When I thought of a person who exemplified self-control because of my incredibly small definition, I've generally thought of someone who's been a Christian for as long as they can remember, but who has lost all their spirit. They're disciplined, you gotta give them that, but they're incredibly rigid and judgmental and not fun to be around. That's the you know, advertisement for self-control that maybe I bought into. But then I look at Paul and Peter's definition when they talk about living by design. And I realized that if self-control really is about saying yes to things that love allows and no to anything love won't allow, the example isn't an old curmudgeon who's rigid and has a life that gets smaller. This is an artist who says no to doing extra commissions on the weekend so she has time to volunteer teaching art classes for people who can't afford them. This is a person who's saved money all their life, taking a year off of saving to give everything they earn beyond their regular expenses away to other people. This is someone who says no to going dinner with his boss and coworkers so he could say yes to dinner with a colleague six months sober who needs to talk about new habits for recovery. It's a 22 year old who has been saving for years to finally get out of this old Buick that she's driven through college who ends up giving her car fund to her grandparents' rent. It's a person who says no to their own comfort zone so they can attend a recovery group to be accountable for an addiction they have that they've hidden under the thin veneer of a really good Christian reputation. Every one of these people did something I think most of us would consider a sacrifice. They've all given something up, but I don't think any of them want what they've given up back because they've said no to something that love wouldn't allow to embrace something that love required. And they don't feel heroic for it either. They're just doing what anybody would do if they live by design. I think most of us, once we commit to life in Christ, want this, right? We, we all want a life that's more conformed from our actions to our reactions, to our habits, to our attitudes, to be in greater alignment with Christ. We want habits that make our life bigger and fuller and more expansive, just like every architect when they start a project wants to design a building that sings. But if it was just as easy as wanting it, every building would be beautiful and every life would be too. Nobody builds a bad house or a bad life on purpose. They just forget the design. So how do we find it? How do we discover who God calls us to be? I think the first thing we can do is to read the brief. Architects start designing a house based on what they call a brief or a plan that they come to with the client that'll help the building produced serve the client's needs. And Paul actually gives the church in Corinth a brief for constructing their life when he says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so they may be saved. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
If Paul was seeking his own good, he never would have left his career at the top of his game. He had prestige and power and money and connections, all things that many of us in the church, after our relationship with Christ, still yearn for. And yet Paul says no to that because he believed that the mission of God was a much better way to spend his life, despite the fact that it ended up taking him into prison, being bitten by scorpions, and considered a traitor to his own religion. So when he says, follow me as I follow Christ, you can bet that he does so knowing that if you look deeply enough into his life, you'll find that yours may also include giving up a lot of your rights for love's sake. Because God doesn't have just your life in mind, he has the nations in mind. Here's a good way to figure out if you're following the brief. When you daydream about things, when you plan how you're going to spend your time or your energy or your attention or your resources, do you think about things that will only benefit you? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with using your time and attention and resources on things that you enjoy. Hear me say that. And hear me say that there may very well be things that God would have you use those resources for that are currently not in your dreams. He may call you to use your convertible savings to sponsor somebody's education or your lunch break that you could have been connecting with your boss angling for a promotion to mentor a kid at Kids Hope. He could use your, call you to use your Saturday to coach a football team instead of enjoying some relaxation at home or listening to a neighbor that's really hurting and you've avoided for years by just closing the garage door right when you pull in. Paul reminds his congregation to look out for their neighbors, not just their rights or their preferences, because he believes for good reason that if he doesn't remind them, they'll forget. And so will we. So maybe the big question is, what priorities does God have that you don't right now? What priorities does God have that, if you were honest with yourself, you don't right now? The second thing we can do is to work the building plan. A building plan, said one contractor, is just a series of daily actions that come together to make a building. Your habits, as it turns out, are just a series of daily actions that come together to make your character. Paul says, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, in other words, even the smallest things, let them be done for the glory of God. I remember growing up in church and having Christians sort of sift through their life when they were getting ready to make a big decision, usually. And before they do it, they would ask, is it sin to buy this thing or to drink or to dance? Or, you know, they ask, is it sin? And it's not a bad question. It just seems that Paul offers a better one here. I wonder how different our lives would be if instead of asking, is it sin about our habits, we ask, does this promote holiness? In other words, of all the habits in my life, which ones point to greater joy, greater delight, and greater formation and fulfillment in the things that God cares about? Not just for me, but for the community to which I belong. Your habits are the blueprints and the building plan for your character. What kind of character are you building? And maybe just as importantly, what habits have you said yes to that don't help you glorify God in every area of your life? The last thing we can do, I think, is to keep listening this whole sermon, we've been talking about the house of your life as if you're the one architecting it, but you're not. And I know that's not fair. I set you up to think that. 
But that is the way we tend to approach our life, isn't it? We build into our life uh, our priorities so thoroughly that we have no margin to listen for God or to the deep cries of other people's hearts. But Paul in this passage assumes that part of your life will be spent learning to know God's heart more deeply and with people who don't know Christ but trust you enough to invite you into their life. That's one of the most familiar ways I think God often calls us to give up our rights, isn't it? Is by giving up our time to people we feel have no claim on it. I remember years ago, a friend of mine got invited to speak all around the world, but he turned almost every invitation down. He accepted only about a tenth of them. So he could spend more time, he said, with one man he discipled on weekdays in a McDonald's and spend more time being really present with his wife and his kids who were nine and 11 at the time. For a long time, he said, I was so convinced God called me to speak that I said yes almost every time. But all the while I knew that there were people around me God was calling me to serve that I was missing. It's not that speaking was a sin. Maybe it was what I needed to do in that season, he said. But now it seems like God's making me more okay with missing a chance to speak and less okay with missing a chance to listen. Where in your life is God inviting you to love by listening? Where in your life is God calling you to say yes to his invitation and no to anything that love won't allow? Is it your priorities? Is it your habits? Or is it your listening? If it's your priorities... I'm going to ask you to make a commitment this week to something that God cares about that's not currently on your own priority list. Some of you probably already know what this is because God's been stirring in your heart a passion or a discomfort towards something for a long time that he'd call you to address. And so if you already know what it is that God's calling you to do, do it today. Like before you leave, send an email or a text to the person that can keep you accountable for doing that or the person that'll help you in that effort. If it's an organization or a person, send them an email. But if you don't know what to do and you'd like help sifting through the process of what God's doing in our community that may not be on your priority list, but you wanna be a part of, I'd encourage you to email Pastor Bo. In addition to being a wonderful human being who has great tattoos, he's also really good at conversation and discernment. And we we'll, would love to sit down with you and help you sift through some of what God's doing in your heart and some of how that might align with what God's doing both here and around the world, whether that's through our church or through another place. Bo probably knows about it. But if it's your habits, I'm going to invite you to reach out to somebody for help and know that you're responsible for finding it. A pastor or a counselor or an accountability partner or a group who can disciple you more deeply, whatever it is, I encourage you before you close your browser window or leave this room or the parking lot to reach out to somebody, not who's gonna make you be free. Sometimes we have these unreasonable expectations of accountability relationships as if it's another person's job to free you from addiction or a habit that you've had for a long time. It's not, but to find someone who can keep in conversation with you about ways in which you're saying no to things love won't allow and yes to things God's calling you to. And if it's your listening, I'm asking you to set aside two minutes in your morning, maybe right when you wake up, maybe before you're walking out the door as you're on your commute, where you'll simply ask God to help you be a blessing to someone along the way. And then to take two minutes at night 
maybe at dinner time with the, your community, or maybe just before you go to bed. And just ask God, how do we do today? Review the opportunities in which God brought people into your life that you could love by listening. Whatever it is, whether it's your habits or your priorities or your listening, I keep believing that God's fashioning our church into the kind of people from our calendars to our budgets to our way of talking about people behind their back or reacting when they hurt us who are deeply rooted in living a life, as Paul says, not just for our interests, but for the interests of others and the good of many so that they may know God deeply. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we believe that you have called us uh, to live lives that glorify you on purpose so that the things that we include in the floor plan of our heart and our character and our life are purposefully pointed toward habits and practices and listening and priorities that root holiness in our hearts. Not just so that we can say no to things that we always want, but so that things that we currently want can be bent into alignment with your heart, reshaped by the movement of your spirit so that when you call and it requires sacrifice, there's no cost too high for us to say yes to because we've been well in practice of saying no to our preferences when that's what love requires. Make us those kind of people today and start the work this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.